Abraham series. This is the final part, um, so this is the last time you'll be seeing this logo and this video forever. Unless you want to go online and check 1 through 9, those are going to be on the interwebs uh, pretty much forever. As long as there's electricity, we'll have those videos on there. Um, so I'm not going to reteach everything from weeks 1 through 9. We're just going to start with a blank slate here on week 10. And I'm, I need to start out with a question, um, one which won't much to the people who watch online if they live in a different state. But I'm just curious, how many of you here today moved to Minnesota as an adult? How many of you, come on, raise them high, proud people. You used to live somewhere else. Okay, so if you, if you moved here as an adult later on in life, you can totally see where I'm, I'm going with this next part. Um, I moved here from Arizona two years, two months, and two weeks ago. It just kind of worked out that way where I'm talking about it on this day. Um, so two years, two months, two weeks ago. And I noticed there's lots of differences between Arizona and Minnesota. Um, for example, right now in Arizona, it's getting close to fall time and winter time. So pretty soon, people out there, if they have a lawn with grass, they're going to be putting um, some seeds on it that they call winter grass. They have winter grass for the winter time in Arizona. Do you know what we call winter grass in Minnesota? Grass. <laughs> like, this is the normal grass that grows here. They need to plant it um, just because of their climate. Anyway, there's one other big difference, and this is kind of where I'm going. When we moved to Arizona, um, we had to get a driver's license there, so we went into the DMV, they took a picture, and they gave us our license, and they're good until, like, the year 2055. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, until you're 60 or 65, they want you to go in again. And, and, and uh, so anyway, that's what Arizona was like. Well, if you move to Minnesota as an adult, they don't believe you're a good driver until you take a written test. So we moved to Minnesota. I'm going through all the things that come along with transitioning, and one thing is get a driver's license. And so I go to the DMV. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I've been driving for 18 years now. Why should I need to study for this test? I failed. <laughs> I failed the test. I failed it the first time. It's not a written test. It's on a screen. That totally threw me off. But I'm curious how many of you would get these questions right without any studying. Okay, so if you're a teenager and you just learned this stuff, you can't give any answers. I just want to see how many of you know this. This is real stuff on the test. Anyone who flees a police officer is sentenced to imprisonment for not more than two years, five years, three years, or four years. Apparently, you're not a good driver unless you know the answer to this question. <laughs> By the way, I know we have law enforcement here at Bethlehem. I appreciate the test and all. It's just not fair. Anyone know the answer? Anyone know the answer? Let's show the answer. See, three years and one day. You can't go to jail for more than that if you resist arrest. There you go. Uh, here, there's three questions. Here's the second one. The speed limit in urban or town roads is blank unless signs indicate otherwise. I hear C. Is that your final answer? Uh, yes, you're correct. You see, I picked B. I said 25 because I'm safer than most drivers are. But really, I mean, I guess you're not safe unless you know that. Okay, last one here, last one. A triangular orange sign on the back of a slow-moving vehicle indicates that the vehicle can travel no faster than 40, no faster than 30, no faster than 35. I'm serious. These are some of the questions they ask you. Or that the, the, it must travel slower than 40. Now, if you're smart, which one do you automatically kick out? D, D is the odd duck, so you multiple choice, you always get rid of the odd one. So now you're left with three choices, and I'm just thinking, well, that triangle sign, doesn't that just mean don't hit me? 
literally, I thought that's what it meant, because I had never hit anyone with an orange sign on, on them before. But the actual answer is B, B, 30. See, you're not as, many of you are not safe drivers either. I had to review these things. So needless to say, I failed my first driving test. I failed my first driving test. Okay, let's, let's get to the point here. Um, tests are not fun to do. Tests are not fun to take. And some tests don't even uh, faithfully represent the thing they're trying to test for. Um, here's the thing. As we finish the series on Bethlehem, Bethlehem, as we finish the series on Abraham, what better way to finish a series than to give Abraham a little test? In weeks one through nine, Abraham has learned all sorts of things. Or let me rephrase that. Abraham has been taught all sorts of things, but sometimes there's a difference between what we're taught and what we learn. So verse 1 of chapter 22, this is getting towards the end of Abraham's life, um, simply starts with this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. So Abraham had to go through a test. And here's where I'm going to tell you why to listen to the rest of the message. Why would God test Abraham? If you know why God tested Abraham, you're going to know why God might test you, why God might allow tests to come into your life. And we might take a lot of offense to this. Why would God have to test anyone? Shouldn't he already know the answer to the test? Shouldn't he know what's in Abraham's heart? Shouldn't he know what Abraham is capable of doing? You see, that's what we use tests for all the time. We want to see what someone is able to do. But I'm going to turn this around. Here's, here's kind of why you should pay attention today. Uh, this is number one on your sheet. You see, God's tests aren't to see what we can do. His tests are actually to show what he can do. You see this throughout the scriptures. Um, if you look in the New Testament, quite often the picture of testing is, is this picture of taking a, a piece of precious metal like silver or gold and you put it into a furnace. And you've got to think, well, that's not fun for the silver or gold. But what happens is it, it burns out the impurities. It, it becomes better. The test isn't to see what the thing can do. The test is to see what God can do to it. Um, you see this, if you know your Old Testament history, you see this with Elijah on Mount Carmel when he was facing off against the Baal priests. That whole test wasn't to see what Elijah could do. It was to, to show what God could do. You see this theme running throughout the Bible. So we're going to put this to the test today. Anytime God gives someone a test, it's not to see what they can do. It's to show what he can do. Um, so we're going to go forward here, and by the end, we're going to a- ask the question, well, does God test us today? And if he does, how can we be ready? How can we make sure we don't fail? Um, here's the rest of uh, verse 1 here, and we're going to draw something else out of this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. So he said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, not the most creative script writing, but it's just the account of what's happening. God is approaching Abraham with something big. Uh, verse 2, God said Now pay attention here. Take your son. Now God could have left the rest of this out of here. Take your son to the region of Moriah. But instead he says, take your son, your only son, you know, the one whom you love, and in case you still don't know who I'm talking about, take Isaac. So four different ways to refer to one guy. Take Isaac to the region of Moriah. Now now why be so specific? Well, here's the thing. If you've been with us through weeks one through nine, Uh, you know that sometimes Abraham was pretty quick to change identities of people. Um, Twice, he pointed to his wife Sarah and said, this is my my sister. We'll call her my sister. 
um, as long as it's convenient. So God is saying, I'm not going to give you any wiggle room here. You're going to take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac, and you're going to take him to the region of Moriah. Um, region of Moriah, we're going to talk about that at the end. You have to pay attention to the end to figure out where this is. I know, I'm just teasing you along here. But here's why God is being so specific. He says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice him. The son that you've been waiting for, for for so many years, so many decades, the son I promised you and that you now finally have, I want you to kill him. And Abraham, when I say sacrifice, I don't just mean, you know, make a little blood fall out of his finger, do a little pinprick. I don't mean dedicate him in some symbolic way. I don't mean to send him off to a monastery where he's going to live in seclusion for his life. That's not the kind of sacrifice I'm asking. I want you to make him a burnt offering. Compromise his jugular and then burn up his body to me. And there's going to be a specific place I want you to do this at. We're going to go to this region, and I'm going to show you the very mountain, the very hilltop where I want you to do this. Now, here's another thing. When God tests people, his tests call for a lot of trust. No one knew that more than Abraham. His tests call for a lot of trust. Now, trust is this nebulous thing. Can you measure trust? Like, do you have a scale? You can put trust on it and see how much it weighs. You see, trust isn't something we can see. It's not something we can measure, but there is one way to tell how much of it you have. You can measure trust by what you entrust. Number two on your sheet. You can measure trust by what you entrust. And here's the thing. Would Abraham be willing to entrust his own son to God, to follow God's command, to follow in obedience, and to send his son to this place where he would be put to death? You can measure a person's trust by what they're willing to entrust. So how long did Abraham have to think about this? Verse 3. Early the next morning. Um, Without thinking on it for a few days or a few weeks, and we're not told whether or not he talked to Sarah, but it doesn't say he asked her permission either. He got up early the next morning, loaded up his donkey, took with him his two of his servants and his son Isaac, a very small uh, group, And when he had cut enough wood, this little detail will come important later, but it also tells us something now. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him. You see, Abraham didn't just set out with nothing and say, well, I I assume there will be some wood there, but, you know, maybe we'll show up and there will be no wood around and we'll just have to turn back and go home. No, Abraham sets out with the wood, ready to go, the wood that would be the offering place for his son. And so they set out for the place that God had told them about. Verse 4. On the third day, now imagine this, imagine this. You're traveling with your son whom you love, your only son, and you're traveling with him for three days to this place, and he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but you do. And get this. For three days, it's as if your son is dead. Because you know as soon as you get there what's going to happen. For three days, your son has been dead. But then, on the third day, day, things change. Now, if, if, you can't get, if you can't get the point, there's a lot of similarities between Isaac's story and, and Jesus' story. See, on the third day, everything was about to change. On the third day, Abraham looked up. You can't imagine how his heart must have gone into his stomach when he see the place. Like, we've been traveling, like, this place is out there somewhere, but now he sees that place in the distance, 
So he said to his servants, guys, I want you to stay here with the donkey, take care of this, this little donkey, while I and the boy go over there. And by the way, we need to pause right there because that word boy, and even in the context of this section, it gives us a hint as to how old Isaac is. And this is kind of important. The Hebrew word for boy is the same as the English word for boy. Um, we, we, we have a baby and we say, a boy can refer to infant. Or if you're an adult and you have a, a, a child who is a boy, you can say he's a boy even when he's a teenager, right? Um, so, so get this, Abraham was between an infant and a teenager. Um, as you look at the, the chronology, we know that his, his, uh, his mom died when he was 37. We know Isaac got married at 40. Um, we know that he was weaned at the age of three, and so that's a pretty big spread. But as you look at the way Isaac talks in this section, the way he's described, um, a lot of people say he was early teens, so a teenager. Um, let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's just say he's about 12, which sounds pretty reliable when you look at what most smart, smart people say about this. So Isaac is about 12 years old, going on this journey with his dad, and now his dad sees the place where his sacrifice is going to take place. And he says this to the servants. He says, we will go out and worship. And then catch this, we we will go up there to worship. And worship means I'm going to kill my son. But then we will come back. Um, here's, here's the thing. Abraham was absolutely certain that two would go out and two would come back. And it's not until the New Testament in the book of Hebrews that we get a commentary that gives us a peek inside of Abraham's mind to see what he's thinking at this time. In Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now get this, Abraham reasoned, I love, I love these two words. Yes, there's an element of faith, but also Abraham applied faith to his circumstances. So important. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. <laughs> and in a matter of speaking, his son had been dead for three days on this journey. Well, he did get him back from death. So was God promised that Isaac would be the key to me becoming a great nation. All nations all, all on earth would be blessed through him. And so with that promise in mind, Abraham knew that even if he killed his son and burned up his body, God would bring him back to life. So Abraham said, we're going to go up and worship. We're going to do what God wants. We're going to honor him. And then we will come and so the, the son, Abraham took the wood, get this, took the wood for the burnt offering and he put it on his son Isaac. Can you imagine having your own son carry the wood that will be part of his death? Can you imagine that? Carrying his wood up on his back and then Abraham himself carried the fire and he carried the knife. They have everything that they need. Verse 7. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, his father Abraham, he said, Father, literally the, the Hebrew word is my father, which is really awkward. You don't see this in the Old Testament Hebrew, which makes you think this is a, a boy, someone who doesn't may, maybe know how to uh, talk that well. My father. And he says, yes, my son. Um, Isaac goes on with this question. The fire and the wood are here. Or literally the Hebrew simply says, fire? wood, but for the burnt offering. Isaac could see, remember this, see the wood, he could see the fire, he could not see 
the lamb for the burnt offering. So if you're Abraham, what do you do to Isaac? Do you take out a mirror? Son, I got some news for you. You're the offering. You're the burnt sacrifice. What does Abraham do with this? Well, again, in faith, Abraham reasoned what must happen on top of this mountain. So this is how Abraham replied. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. God himself will provide. Uh, Literally, God himself will see to it, my son. God will see to it. Isaac could see the fire. He could see the wood. He could not see the lamb. So Abraham said, God will see to the lamb. God will see to it. Wouldn't that be awesome? Imagine the peace you could have in your life if you could take the things that you weren't sure about and just put them in a place to it. God will see to it. God will see to it. And so the two of them went on together. When they reached the place where God had told them about, again, a very specific hill in a very specific place, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, knowing his son would soon be on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Why would he bind his son? Why would he have to bind him? Because Isaac, if Isaac were a completely willing party, he wouldn't have to be bound. He would just lay there on the altar and wait for what was happening. But Isaac was scared. Isaac was asking his father, what are we doing here? Dad, I see what's about to happen. Father, if there's a different way to do this, let's go a different route. But, but Isaac was bound to his father's will. It's like 2,000 years later, Jesus would say, Father, way to do this. Let's do something else. Yet Jesus was bound to his father's will. And so this next part goes in super slow motion. Then he, Abraham, reaches out and took the knife to slay his son. And we've seen all these glorified Sunday school versions or Charleston, whatever, um, versions of Abraham where he's got this flowing robe and this manly beard and he's got this look on his face with the knife above his head. Um, In reality, this would simply mean compromising the jugular, draining the blood, and then burning up the body. Um, And so picture this. Abraham has one hand on the head of his son to hold it still and he's picking up the knife with the other. Now, how much do you trust God, Abraham? Well, I entrust to him my son. So here's the thing. There wasn't even time for an angel to appear, to intervene. Um, Verse 11, the angel of the Lord had to call out from heaven. Like, there's no time. Abraham's about to do this. He calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And you got to ask the question, well, didn't God already know that Abraham feared him before this? Doesn't God know everything and didn't he do this? The thing about this word know is it means to know from experience. Like if you know somebody, it, it means that you've built a relationship with them. You have an experience. You have a history. There's proof. Of something. And so now God is saying, Now I know, now I have proof, now there's evidence that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God, uh, Abraham entrusted his own son to God. Verse 13. Abraham looked up. Now pause there because if this was all about Abraham's great faith, we would not have a verse 13. If this was all about a test that shows us what Abraham can do, 
we would stop right there. But verse 13 goes on. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, he saw that God had seen to it. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, placed it as a burnt offering, in place of, instead of, as a substitution, in place of his own son. He looked up and he saw that God had seen to it. Just like 2,000 years later, a man named John, who was a bit eccentric with his clothing and his diet, looked up and he saw the Lamb of God. God had seen to it. The account ends like this, verse 14. Now, Abraham could have called that place Abraham Rocks. Abraham is resilient. Abraham's faith, you know, this account could have been so much about it. Rather, he called that place, the Lord will provide. Literally, the Lord will see to it. And to this day, this is Moses writing this centuries later. Moses adds this detail. He says, to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God will see to it. You see, um, um, number three on your sheet, if you're t- whatever you place before God, whatever you entrust to him, he will see to it. God's tests are not to see what you can do. They're to show what he can do. And the only way he can do something is if you entrust it to him. What you entrust, he will see to it. Now, one quick connector, and then um, we'll, we'll close with an application. For, for centuries and centuries, descendants of Abraham would, would offer burnt offerings. They would bring these lambs. They would put them on the altar. They would drain the blood. They would, they would burn them up as an offering to God. And this was solidified under Moses that this was something that the descendants of Abraham were to do. Now, why? <laughs> because they would remember this wonderful day that the Lord saw to it. The Lord provided a sacrifice for this 12-year-old boy who had gone and was rescued. Because the Lord saw to it, the descendants of Abraham existed. Now, Mount Moriah. I teased you that uh, I'd tell you where it was at the end. Um, there's, there's one reference in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, as the, the historian who wrote this was recounting the events of the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is what he said. Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount, I'm sorry, on Mount Moriah. Where did I get Horb from? On Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. So where's Mount Moriah? Jerusalem. Where the temple was built. Twelve-year-old Isaac brought up to the temple, brought up to the place where the temple would be. Now, here's the interesting thing. The first thing that we hear in Jesus' account in the biographies of Jesus happens when he's 12 years old. Guess where he was brought? The temple. And remember why he went there? Remember why his father brought him there? Remember why he stayed there? Well, he said, well, I'm interested in my father's business. You see, my father's business, the way that God's work is, he provides a substitute for those who are going to die. And there at that temple, he made his stand and said, I'm here to do that. And in similar fashion, just like Isaac, he would carry the in his back to the place where he would be sacrificed. Except in this case, there was no angelic intervention when he was arrested. There was no substitute when, when he was 
when he was condemned. There, there was no angelic voice from heaven telling the Roman soldier to stop as he picked up his hammer to put the nails into his hands and feet. You see, Jesus was the lamb. Jesus was the substitute. And not just to spare one person, but to spare the world from God's judgment and anger. So back to the question. Does God test you? Does he set up these circumstances in life where he's saying, well, let's, let's see what you do with this one? Um, well, here's the thing. We've, we've established this. When God gives tests, it's not to see what you can do. It's to show what he can do. So there's ask. The only way for God to do something is if you entrust it to him. So here's the better question. What would you entrust to God? What would you find yourself holding onto and not ready to let go of? For Abraham, it would have been Isaac, the thing he loved the most, the one he loved the most. What is it for you? Uh, last one on your sheet here. The, here's a thing we learned from Abraham. What you believe what God asks you to let go of. So what is it? Now, that's more just a question to leave you with this week, but here's the good news. Here's the good news. When it comes to your inner thoughts, and as you think about this, you're going to think, okay, well, I need to do something, or I need to be strong, I need to have faith. No, it's not about that. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God can do through you, in you, for you. Because he's something, he replaces it with himself. Um. What I'm looking forward to is next week, we get to start a brand new series. It's going to be called Home Sweet Home, unless we change it between now and next week. Sometimes we do that. But for now, it's called Home Sweet Home. And it's, it's not just about family life and home life. It's really about every relationship in your life. And, and what Abraham understood, what he knew, was that sometimes relationships can even have this comes to priorities in life. So come back next week. Uh, we're going to uh, learn more, study more about how to honor God with all the things in our life, all the, all the, all the, um, all the people in our life. Um, we're going to close with a prayer, and um, one of the things I'm going to close with in this prayer is a little phrase that Martin Luther would say every night and every morning as he thought about the things that he should entrust or he should commit to God. Um, so we'll, we'll include that in our prayer today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when I think tests and, and when I think of challenges in my life, my default, my go-to mode is to see what I can do. But I know that the, the bigger story, the, the thing you would rather have me look at is what you can do, what you can do for us, what you can do through us, what you can do in us. And so my, my prayer is that you would give us the faith to be able to entrust to you everything. As Martin Luther said, every night, every morning, let us commit into our body, our soul, all things, because we know you are our loving Father, and what we entrust to you, you will see to. Bless everyone here, here today, bless all those listening to this message, to, to be able to hand those things off to you, because we know you will see to it. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll continue at this.